Welcome to How to Fix, a podcast all about the behind the scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we've been talking to the cutting edge researchers and practitioners who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Today, we're discussing an issue that will affect one in two of us in our lifetime, and that's cancer. In 2020 alone, there were over 19 million new cases worldwide and 10 million deaths, with a predicted rise to 28 million by 2040. In fact, I'm almost certain that every single one of you listening to this podcast, upon hearing the word cancer, is immediately thinking of someone right now who's been affected. Maybe it's someone you've lost. Maybe it's someone receiving treatment at the moment. Maybe it's yourself. Well, cancer is a disease in which cells from the body grow uncontrollably, and this can start almost anywhere. It's incredibly tricky to treat because cancers in different parts of the body require different treatments, and because cancerous cells can then spread to other parts of the body. A medical response to cancer often entails lots of different innovative methods. Cancer is one of the largest global challenges humanity faces, and although we're not going to be able to fix it in one podcast, I do think you're about to hear some incredible insights that will leave you feeling positive that major work is being done to take us closer to that goal. Three very different guests are on the way, a clinician, an engineer, and a biologist who are all undertaking groundbreaking work to beat cancer. had the uh, operation to remove my tumour in 2007. In the in-between stages, I did have chemo and radiotherapy, uh, just as a, an experiment, I suppose, uh, which was very effective. The tumour was, was removed, but it was agreed that I had to continue with the major surgery because the state of imaging was not such that it could guarantee that all these cancer cells were removed. I was diagnosed with rectal cancer in virtually the same position as Trevor's tumour uh, in May 2019. Differently from Trevor, I was offered a trial whereby the idea was to have five weeks of chemo and radiotherapy and then see what had happened to the tumour. And at the end of the five weeks, I was allowed to cook a bit because that's what happens with radiotherapy. It continues working. But when I was then examined in September 2019, the tumour had gone. So I didn't need surgery and I haven't needed surgery. So my life hasn't changed in the radical way that Trevor's changed in 2006. The end result of my operation was I ended up with a stoma, uh, an ileostomy, which means I have a bag uh, and all the implications in my life for the last 10, 14 years uh, are based around that. So you know, there's evidence every day of yeah. uh, the problems that Judy's avoided. I decided early on that I was alive and, you know, this was part of the uh, the, the deal. So I just, I literally just took it on and it's only actually in later years, the last couple of years, it's just begun to feel a bit of a bind. Today, we welcome to our roundtable discussion from the University of Leeds, David Seabag Montefiore, our resident clinician and professor of clinical oncology in Leeds' School of Medicine and director of the Leeds Cancer Research Centre. It's great to be here and really looking forward to discussing cancer today. 
Uh, we also have Chairing Robotics and Autonomous Systems, Professor Pietro Valdastri. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Richard, for the introduction and for inviting me to this podcast. And Professor of Molecular Medicine, Richard Bayliss, also joining us. It's great to be here. I always enjoy talking about this topic with David and Pietro, so it's great to have it recorded for once. <laughs> well, that's the idea. And hopefully you're going to be able to give us some insights into the amazing work that you're doing. We heard those statistics in the introduction to this podcast, and they are quite startling and, and alarming, as everyone knows. But just before we get on to the individual work that you're doing, and David, let's just start with you. Give us an idea of the, the current landscape of cancer care, what approach Leeds is taking, and most importantly, the kind of collaborative nature that the university takes in, in terms of tackling this issue. So... We have a, a long and rich heritage of cancer research in Leeds that spans more than a century. And I hope you'll hear today how we are accelerating the progress we're making to tackle cancer together. It dates back to the 1920s when we had a radium centre, all the way through to 2023, where we have state-of-the-art facilities, outstanding multidisciplinary teams, and an outstanding treatment centre at the Bexley Wing at St. James's. That combines to allow us to actually take all the research that we're doing into the clinic to transform the lives of people with cancer. So one of the ways we can substantially improve the speed at which we make progress in cancer is actually connecting biologists, chemists, engineers, artificial intelligence experts and clinicians. And the Leeds Cancer Research Centre is a university and trust-wide initiative to bring together those people to actually help us make that progress quicker. So to create the collaborations within Leeds, but also with our international collaborators to allow us to really accelerate and tackle cancer. Yeah, and Richard, I, I know in terms of you're working together because we'll hear in a minute that you'll you come at this from different angles, but the overreaching sort of branch of this is that by doing it in a collaborative nature, you're able to make more progress. That's exactly right. So the collaboration stems from understanding the disease at a biological level, but understanding what is required to help improve treatments and diagnosis, and really coming up with ideas because as an individual you're not going to understand enough of this very complex disease or the needs of a specific group of patients. You're not going to understand enough to be able to come up with a, a really great new idea. So you have to collaborate in order to innovate, to create new treatments and diagnostics. Pietro, for you, that, I guess, kind of works the same as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. For me, what is unique in Leeds is that within five minute walking distance, we have a great hospital, a school of engineering, faculty of biological sciences. We also have a great uh, startup incubator, which is the Nexus, that also covers the translational component of new technologies in all the aspects, including medicine and healthcare. So it's really great to be co-located in the same place with all these opportunities. And I think one thing to, to highlight maybe from the start as well is that a lot of people hear the word cancer and, and naturally it's not positivity that comes to mind straight away. But I think one thing that I guess is worth highlighting here is that there is a heck of a lot of work being done. There is reason for people to be hopeful that progress is being made here. Absolutely. Progress really is being made. And you only have to look back at historical figures of cancer survival from 
the 1970s or, or 1980s to where we are today to see that there are certain kinds of cancer that were very difficult to treat back then. Patients had really poor prognosis, but now there are a range of absolutely superb treatments. And so for many of these patients, they have really good long-term survival prospects. There's actually so much to cover here that it's difficult to know, to know where to start with the work that you're doing. But I think if we start with, with lung cancer, because that's something where your three areas really combine together to, to make great progress. And I guess there's two areas to that, which is detection of lung cancer and how the University of Leeds is making progress with that. And on treatment, which I guess is more with you, Richard. So let's just start on the detection side of stuff. And, and David, let me come to you first, because a lot of this to do with with this is to do with inequalities and health inequalities. And that's a theme, inequalities that's been running throughout a lot of these podcasts. So just explain to us how that fits in in terms of lung cancer. So lung cancer is the, the commonest cause of death of people in deprived communities. And it represents a very major health challenge. And there are many factors that we can tackle to actually substantially improve the outcome for people. Firstly, we know that that smoking is one of the biggest factors, and we've seen substantial falls in the rates of smoking, and encouraging people to stop smoking is the single most important factor that will make a difference. We're also aware that pollution, air pollution, can make a significant difference to the risk of developing lung cancer, and we also have to tackle that. But most importantly, if people are at risk of developing cancer, we want to detect it early because if we detect it early, there's a substantially high chance of curing the actual disease with either radiotherapy or surgery. And at the moment, it's quite hard to identify this at an early stage. Many patients present relatively late when the cancer is quite advanced. So one initiative that's been led in Leeds and across Yorkshire is taking scans on vans into supermarket car parks across the country, particularly into disadvantaged communities to offer people at high risk of developing lung cancer a scan performed in the supermarket car park. And that's been very successful in detecting cancer early and enabling curative treatment. It's also enabled the people who've been studied to be offered approaches to try and reduce their risk of cancer if their scans are normal. So this is a really important way of trying to reduce the risk of lung cancer outcomes being poor and improving and giving hope for all the patients who are at risk of this disease. Let me ask you, what has the take-up been like on that? Because it's a strange place in theory to go and, and, and get a scan for something so serious, but people have sort of seen those and thought, this is a good idea, it's worth worth getting checked. So this has been a very successful initiative that's been funded by Yorkshire Cancer Research And the uptake has been beyond expectations. And there has been a really dramatic, successful program, which has actually been very influential, not only in Yorkshire, but it had a major impact in the government recently announcing the plans to introduce a screening program for people at high risk of lung cancer. And it just makes sense, doesn't it, actually, to go out there to communities where maybe they wouldn't have access or, or wouldn't think to, to do that initially to go out there and be proactive in this field? Absolutely. I think we're in a situation where we're taking the hospital to the people. And I think one of the biggest challenges for people who need to actually be investigated is getting access to their doctor and also access to investigations. And many of them have major problems about traveling long distances to hospitals. 
So I think we will see in the future a greater increase in the hospital closer to the patient. So that's one area in terms of detection and going out there and being proactive, like we say. Pietro, let's talk about, and people might be surprised to hear the words I'm about to say here, let's talk about robotic tentacles, because this is the work that you've been doing, which when I first heard about, blew my mind. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. And there's the Storm Lab here at, at the university. So take us into that lab yes, yes. and explain exactly how robotic tentacles yes. are, are helping detect cancers. So the main goal of our uh, research is really to get as deep as possible inside the human body in a non-invasive or minimal invasive way. Because it's interesting to think that we are able to send people on the moon or at the bottom of the ocean, but getting in certain part of our body is extremely difficult. One area is the periphery of the lungs, for example, and this is the step that is required after the scan. So if the scan finds something suspicious in the lungs, then the patient is referred to a bronchoscopy, which entails the introduction of a tube inside the mouth and traveling through the, through the lungs. Uh, so this tube is typically quite large and cannot reach deep inside the bronchial tree, inside the, in, in the periphery of the lungs. And it's also a very complex uh, procedure. Man- Manual procedure, and there is a bottlenecking capacity. So that's the reason why waiting lists are so long at the moment, uh, because we need uh, skilled operators to perform this procedure. And also, it's very difficult with the current instruments to get very deep inside the lungs. And so what we are developing are small tentacles, basically uh, smaller than a pencil, like uh, to give you an idea, so two millimeter in diameter. And those can be introduced in the patient and guided autonomously to reach the periphery of the lung. They're very cheap to manufacture and implement uh, in the patients. So what we really are up to is to get as deep as possible in the lungs and in a way that is also extremely easy to implement and affordable so that we don't need the expert in doing this, but a procedure can be performed by doctors that have not a long training, so nurses, for example. And this should increase capacity and cut uh, waiting lists. Now, I know you're working in this within this day in, day out. So for you, this is regular stuff. For, for me and for a lot of people hearing this, well, like I say, their minds will be blown yeah. that you can do this. And in terms of from a practical point of view, like you say, it's quicker to do, it's easy to do, less yeah. humans required in in that process. But just describe to us yes. exactly what this looks like. You've said it, it's, it's small. From what, what I gather, about two millimetres in diameter. It's a two millimetre plastic catheter or like long tube and it has magnetic particles inside. And so we use the principle of magnetic actuation, which to give a very quick and easy example to clean a water tank. There are those two brushes that are connected uh, magnetically. And so what and it's very similar process. So we have a magnet inside the body of the patient, so the tentacle, and we have a magnet outside. And so by moving the magnet outside, like the brushes to clean the wall of an aquarium, uh, we move the catheter, the tentacle inside the body. So that's that's the principle. It it's, it's, sounds like very trivial, but of course there are a lot of complexities in terms uh, we need to know where the tentacle inside the body to decide how to move the external magnet properly. So we have intelligence embedded in, in, in the system and a lot of other technical aspects that are 
not trivial, but uh, yeah, in substance, that's what we are doing. Thanks to everyone nodding along, sort of, just like I am just saying, that is just incredible, you know, concept and idea and the fact that it's working and that can it can detect more than you've been able to do yes. before yes. is incredible, which, which kind of, I guess, that brings us on to you, Richard, because we're talking there about going out and proactively detecting. We're talking about then how you can use these robotic tentacles to basically get biopsy sample to confirm that the mass seen in the scan is a tumor or not. Amazing stuff. And then that brings us on to you, Richard, which is, I guess, to do with treatment. And a a lot of people listening will want to know about the developments in treatment at the moment and about how that is progressing. So in this kind of third pronged attack on lung cancer that we're talking about, can you explain to us the different types of treatment and how they are improving, how they are improving prognosis for people and hopefully quality of life uh, at the end of the day? Yeah, so if we think about those patients who've got advanced lung cancer, that surgery or radiotherapy won't work because the cancer has spread from the primary sites in the lung to other parts of the body. So they need treatments that are systemic, so where the cancer cells can be reached throughout the body. And in the past, the mainstay of doing that was chemotherapy, which people will be familiar with. And chemotherapy works really well in many kinds of cancer, but it's never worked particularly effectively in lung cancer. For patients who have advanced lung cancer, there isn't a one-size-fits-all strategy, but there are some new treatments that have really changed their prognosis and survival. And two of the main breakthroughs have been in what are called targeted therapies and in immunotherapy. So the targeted therapies work on specific groups of patients who have particular mutations in the DNA of their cancer cells. When you analyze the DNA of advanced lung cancer patients, you can track lots of changes that happen in those cells from their normal cells. And you can group them according to which gene those changes have occurred in. So for patients who've got mutations in genes such as the ALK gene or EGFR, there are now these targeted therapies and they work at their small molecules that bind to the ALK or the EGFR and they switch them off. So they switch them off in the cancer cells. The cancer cells needed those proteins to work. And when they're switched off, that's it, the cancer cells die. And these are incredibly effective therapies for those patients. The treatments have improved the survival for ALK patients. In the past, they would have had months of survival post-diagnosis, whereas now the average survival for those patients is over five years with the current ALK targeted therapies. So that's one kind of therapy. The, the downside to them is that they, they only work for patients who've got those specific genetic changes. So in the case of ALK in the UK, it's about 6% of advanced lung cancer patients. The other breakthrough in treatment has been immunotherapies. And these work by enabling the body's immune system to recognize and target cancer cells. Cancer cells are really effective at evading the immune system. And so the body needs a little bit of help sometimes in recognizing those cells. For many advanced lung cancer patients who don't have ALK or EGFR mutations, these immunotherapies are really effective. On a purely human level, because you talk about the the medicine there and the, and the biology of it all, to be working on stuff like this and to be able to see 
that there are improvements in terms of uh, life expectancy and people's quality of life must be incredibly rewarding to be doing that work and then seeing that, yes, there is a huge amount of work to be done. You've said that this is in two areas. There are many more that they need breakthroughs in. But just to see that progress when you're working in, in the field must be amazing to know that there are, are people with these advances that can have improvements and, and improved prognosis. Yes, it's really motivating. And you recognize what's been achieved, but then that also gives you hope for making a breakthrough yourself and trying to make a difference. So you'll recognize which groups of patients don't have an effective therapy. And it's a scientific challenge, but the motivator is that you know that these are people who need better treatments. And that perhaps if your knowledge and those of your friends and collaborators can help to bring those treatments about, that's really exciting and really motivating. And I think one of the most exciting feelings you can have, even if you haven't developed something yourself, is when you hear about one of these new therapies. You, you're sitting in a conference hall, some slides go up, you know, they might look like pretty boring graphs, but immediately everyone in the room can see what's happened. They can see that there is a, a new treatment that has been shown to work in a clinical trial, and you immediately know how beneficial that will be for many people. That's so great for us to hear. And when I say us, I mean anyone like me who's not you, who's not working in this the whole time to hear that there are these conversations going on, that there are these breakthroughs going on, that there are ways to detect, that there are ways to treat, that you're living day in, day out, but actually we don't hear as much. We could focus just on lung cancer for the whole of this, but that would do a disservice to the other work that's going on here at the university as well. And clearly the three of you working together with your teams, doing amazing work in that field. There's other things happening as well. David, if you could talk to us a little bit about bowel cancer and what's happening in, in that area at the moment and, and, and that field and how things are improving. Yeah, it'd be fantastic to talk through the, the advances in bowel cancer. And Leeds has a really world-leading expertise in actually various aspects of bowel cancer research. So that ranges from making diagnosis early through Pietro's work, which he may want to comment on in a minute, about how we actually screen patients and detect cancer early. But having detected cancer, we want to develop the most effective treatments that actually provide the long-term success of treatment for patients, but also with the least degree of side effects. So one of our key areas that we're leading on is smarter, kinder treatments. And so an example would be in rectal cancer, which is lower down in the bowel, where conventionally the standard treatment today is patients having a major operation to remove that segment of the bowel and commonly a temporary or a permanent colostomy bag, which patients then need to live with for a long period of time. And that can be a very major undertaking for people. Our smarter, kinder approach is exemplified by a Cancer Research UK funded trial called Star Trek. And that's testing two different types of radiotherapy treatment of different durations, which is showing very promising results where it can successfully treat an early rectal cancer and avoid the need for surgery altogether and avoid the need for a permanent colostomy bag. So I think that's an example of how we are pioneering a way forward to offer the, the best treatments for the best outcomes, but with the least side effects and the long-term impact on people. And you heard in the audio clip from Trevor and Judy how our research in Leeds demonstrates a real patient-focused approach. Thinking about diagnosing 
bowel cancer early, there are some world-leading initiatives in Leeds around understanding the cause of bowel cancer and how we can develop a better screening test. The CRUK-funded Optimistic Study, which is a global collaboration across multiple countries, has demonstrated that a common bug in the bowel appears to be one of the significant causes of bowel cancer. And that is being employed through Phil Quirk's lab here in Leeds to develop a better screening test so that people are better identified at being at risk of bowel cancer. People above a certain age will receive a request through the post to complete a screening test. And we are developing a much more efficient test for that. Pietro's work is actually looking at other ways of actually diagnosing bowel cancer early. Yeah, so the next step after uh, blood screening, uh, if positive, is uh, colonoscopy, which very similar to the example we did before for lung cancer is visualization of the intestine with the camera, which is at the tip of a quite long and semi-flexible tube. This is colonoscopy. So this is also the way that in the United States they screen. So first approach to screening there is with colonoscopy. And for example, they recently reduced the age for starting screening down to 45. And this results in about 22 million colonoscopies needed to be performed every year. And there is clearly no capacity for that. And that's where robotics can help. Again, so very similar principle of what I mentioned before about the magnetic tentacles. Still magnetic manipulation, this time magnetic manipulation of uh, extremely soft endoscope with the camera at the tip and the same functionalities as a, a traditional flexible endoscope. So also the possibility to take tissue samples or remove polyps that are precursor of colorectal cancer. But the various advantages of what we are developing is, first of all, a completely painless procedure because we are applying uh, force at the tip of the endoscope uh, instead of having to push a tube from the outside of the body of the patient. So since the colon and the intestine is a very convoluted uh, pathway, if you push something from outside, it has to uh, stretch the tissue to advance. While in our case, we apply the force where it's needed, which is at the tip. And so we assume this will be completely painless. So no anesthesia, no sedation at all. It will be also extremely simple for the operator to an extent that we can even perform autonomous colonoscopy. So basically you have the system saying, okay, drive the tip to the end of the intestine, make sure you have visualized everything. And if something suspicious is spotted, then you flag the event to a doctor that comes in and remove or uh, remove the polyp or take a tissue sample. And this can in really increase capacity. I mean, I think it's worth just pausing on that bit about, about the robotics, just to say that, like I said earlier, you, you sort of speak about this because you're working it, but it, it sounds like, you know, this is kind of major breakthrough stuff yes. in the way that you were going to be able to look at these kind of things. And in terms of the capacity, capacity. of numbers of being able to do this, yeah. and you speak about it in a very relaxed way, I'm listening to this thing, but this is, you know, really incredible stuff that's presumably transferable you talked about lung and, and bowel cancer into detection of other cancers as well presumably in the future yes absolutely for example we are working on going 
to the small bowel, which from a cancer's perspective may be less relevant because the incidence of cancer there is lower, but is much more challenging to reach because it's really in the middle of the gastrointestinal tract. We are also trying to uh, reach the pancreas. So reaching the pancreatic duct to deliver localized therapy. Uh, and again, we try to do this with magnetic tentacles. But I mean, you probably have noticed the enthusiasm when I speak about robotic colonoscopies also because uh, it's been a long process. Uh, I started working on this uh, in uh, 2008. So it's been a long journey, but now we finally are at the point of recruiting patients for human trials. So I could give you a little perspective on that. I have a long-term bowel condition, so I have regular screening colonoscopy. So what, what actually Pietro is talking to, I can very much relate to because a lot of the time having colonoscopy is an uncomfortable and sometimes painful experience, commonly requiring sedation, and in the United States, commonly a general, general anaesthetic. So this is a very major uh, opportunity for the future, and it also addresses a big challenge, helps us address a big challenge in the NHS, which is our workforce. And if we can automate the approaches with less people involved, we have a great opportunity to actually tackle the, the big challenge that Pietro is talking about, the scale of screening people. Yeah, and Richard, it must be pretty inspiring to be working alongside colleagues, and this is for, for all of you really, that are all advancing in such major ways and all heading sort of in the, trying to head in the same direction. Must be quite an amazing thing to come into work and know that whilst you're cracking on with looking at a certain element, you've got incredible people also in their fields doing the same thing. Yes, absolutely. And for bowel cancer in particular, it's clear that early diagnosis is going to be absolutely critical. It's a cancer where many of the strategies that have worked in other types of cancer have worked not quite so well in bowel cancer. So if we think about the targeted therapies in particular, lots of ideas have been tested out, but only a few have proven to be working. So when you're faced with a challenge and the field of researchers comes up with new ideas and test them and they don't work, you know that a different approach is required. And so it's really inspiring to think that maybe the problem of having to treat these advanced cancers will be will disappear or at least be massively reduced if we can just diagnose them quickly. So it is really inspirational. I just want to touch on something. And like I knew at the start of this, this could be, this could be four hours if we wanted it to be. But I do want to talk about something which is underfunded, perhaps, aspects of cancer research, and, and that's the effects of cancer on children, because the numbers are pretty stark, David, when you look at cause of death for, for children up until, what is it, the age of 15? The numbers are really quite frightening, aren't they? So I thought it might be worth us touching on that before we round things up. Sure. So I think we all are aware the impact that cancer has on the lives of individual people, but their families. This is even obviously more so when cancer affects children. And cancer is the highest cause of death for children under the age of 15. The actual outcomes of cancer treatment have dramatically improved, but there is still a way to go to improve further. But in addition to that, we need to reduce the long-term impacts of the side effects of treatment and also to reduce the chance of any of the treatments causing further cancers in the future, because some of the drugs used and some of the radiotherapy used are associated with the risk of a further cancer in the patient's lifetime. So this is a very important area to actually prioritise to improve the lives. And children have such a long 
her future in front of them, it, it really is an important priority. So something like eight out of 10 children with cancer survive for more than 10 years after diagnosis now, which is a huge improvement on, on what it was in the past. So the focus of research is really on the two in 10, you know, the really tricky to treat cancers, but also on improving the long-term health and other opportunities for those children cancer survivors. Pietro, from your point of view, is the work you're doing in terms of detection in adults, is that stuff that's transferable with children? Is it a case yeah. of modifying, adapting? What, what yeah, is, yeah. Is so looking? we try to be as minimal invasive as possible, as small as possible. And this uh, certainly targets a big void in field of instrumentation. So surgical instrumentation is typically designed for adults because that's the market, really. And the number of children needing surgery is so small that large companies don't really see them as a market target. And so with our technology, being since we try to miniaturize as small as possible, it can certainly be used in children. Yeah. I mean, that's a horrifying sentence to hear, isn't it? But you, you, you know, and, and it, is, so it, it is. is what it is, I guess. But it is when we, when we go from the context of talking about it being such a, a high cause of death for children, and then to, to hear that is kind of shocking in its own way. And the same thing's true for treatments. The treatments that children have were generally developed for and tested on adults first. There's historically been very little specific development of treatments for children. That's beginning to change. And one reason why it needs to change is that the kinds of cancer that affect children are different from adults and at a biological level, a cellular level, and in terms of the genetic changes, again, they're also rather different. And so you can, it makes sense, right, that treatments that have been developed for adult cancers are not necessarily going to work on children's cancers because they're, they're different. There's now a lot more focus on trying to understand the causes of children's cancer and develop treatments that could work specifically for those. I just want to say a really big thank you to all of you for sharing that. I feel like we scratched the surface, truth be told, and I'm sure that is exactly what we've done. But just giving people an insight as to the work that's going on here from detection in communities to being able to physically detect within people what's happening and the treatments that are being worked on. We sort of started the podcast by asking, how do we fix cancer as an overriding theme? But what's the work being done to help beat cancer is probably a better way of putting it in this one. And there is incredible work going on. I'd just like to ask you, in the specific fields that you're working in at the moment, if there was one thing that you could change, one thing that you woke up tomorrow morning and something could change to help you with the work that you're doing, push it to the, the next level, what would you want to see? What's the most important thing at the moment, which I can already see just the way you're looking at me is an impossible question to answer. But if you could give us some idea as to the, the kind of things that you would really, really like to see that would make the major changes, the major benefits for people. David, let's start with you. My reflection, and I hope it's come through in our discussions today, I think one of the particular areas that is really exciting about allowing us to accelerate cancer research and make the biggest difference is through working together. We all get out of bed with this mission to tackle cancer. We have a fantastic academic research community in Leeds, and hopefully some of the examples have come through today. So we will make faster progress by having biologists, chemists, engineers, AI, and clinicians working together. And these examples, I think, give you an idea that we are doing that. To accelerate that, I'd like to wake up 
and find a seven-figure check to Leeds to actually allow us to accelerate all the fantastic work that we do to a higher level. Because we are doing great things now, but we could do some really, really cool things and we could do it at a greater scale and faster with future investment. That must be a frustration for you then as well. It's probably worth saying that those could unlock some things that you feel could really make progress. I think we need to recognise that really to make progress in cancer research, it has to be well-funded. And we spend a lot of our time attracting funding from a whole range of government and charity funders for which we're incredibly grateful. But sometimes the bigger ticket items require additional investment. And to, to us, I think that could be truly transformational in Leeds. Pietro, you talked about the work you are doing. I I imagine with all of you, there's work you're doing, there's work you want to be doing, and there's work you can see just on the cusp that's nearly there. What would it be for you? So my dream would be to be faster, to get from an idea that we have and we test on bench to first in human trials and getting the technology to the patient. So for my robotic colonoscopy platform, it took about 15 years from the first ideas now to human trials. And the reason was that no one in the team was trained on this. uh, And I see now a lot of things could have been done faster. And so my dream would be to have uh, an infrastructure and knowledge base, uh, which is totally possible, that would bring innovation in robotics, advanced technology, in about five years from conception to human trials. So that would be really a dream. And Richard? Well, I have to agree with what everything that Pietro and, and David just said. When, in terms of innovation, I'd like to see that also in biologics and small molecule therapeutics. So we know that current technology is not working for some kinds of cancer. So let's develop the new technology. And there's, there's lots of it. There's lots of exciting technology in chemistry and biology labs. But let's take that forward through to the clinic. But I'm going to actually add one of my own that's independent, which is I think having more of this research taking place in hospitals and clinical settings so that the patients and public can see the work that's going on. And I think that would bring great hope. I think a lot of people don't understand where the treatments come through. They'll think, oh, it's there's a company somewhere that's making this stuff up. But actually, a lot of the fundamental research, a lot of the ideas are being generated by people in the universities, research institutes, who would love to share that information, would love to inspire people, get more young people interested in in careers in science. So I think if we did more of the research in a way that was publicly visible, you know, where people are being treated, I think that would help. Thank you all so much. Like we said, the word cancer immediately invokes thoughts for people that are negative and you start thinking about people who've had cancer and have cancer at the moment. But to hear the work that you're doing and to be able to give hope to people who are maybe going through that or to know that in the future there is some real, real innovation going on is amazing. So thank you all genuinely for being on the podcast. And I hope for you listening, that's really given you a sense of hope as to where things are going in that field, the work that's going on here. My name is Rich Williams. This has been How to Fix. And hopefully it's shown in this podcast that although cancer still exists, there are incredible people here at the University of Leeds producing innovative responses to help tackle this complex disease. It's a massive issue. And throughout this series, we've been discussing the phenomenal work of the academics, politicians and practitioners who are making this world a better place. Thanks for joining us. How to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. 
and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds Communications and Engagement Team.